0: You open your hand, O God, and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that your faithfulness reaches up to the heavens. Help that prayer, that song, to be true for us, O God. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow that we might come into contact with all the blessings that you have showered upon us. And we pray all of these things with great anticipation, and we pray them in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's a Harvard researcher by the name of Daniel Gilbert who wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness. And in this book, he says that if you're a social scientist, every social scientist has to wrestle with the answer to kind of the following question and that is this, that the human being is the only animal that blank and that everybody fills in that blank a little differently. Turn to somebody next to you right now and try to fill in that blank. The human being is the only animal that what? Turn to somebody, ready, set, next, go. Well, I don't know how you're choosing to respond to this question but Daniel Gilbert this Harvard trained researcher says the human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. In other words what he's saying is is that most animals can only think a few moments into the future. There are only a handful of animals that can actually think a few minutes into the future. Philosopher's way of saying it is that animals don't experience any existential angst. My dog might be able to sit for a few moments and beg for a treat or a scrap from the table, but our dog Winston has never asked me why bad things happen to good puppies. It's just not on their radar anywhere because they can't think past instinct, pain, pleasure, just a few Moments or minutes into the future. Several years ago, I was at the doctor's office. It was a new internist. Uh, It was a really young physician. I was in there. I was in that vulnerable place as a patient where you're wearing the hospital gown that seems to be made of crackly kind of paper that doesn't seem to cover a whole lot. And you're going over the medical history with your doctor when all of a sudden the conversation took a turn and He asked me, he said, you've been a pastor for a while. He goes, I'm discovering that as a physician, I'm spending a large portion of my time giving people bad news that I'm telling them of cancer or of a disease. He's like, I gotta ask you, does it get any easier? And I said, no, it doesn't get easier. You get more practiced at it, but it doesn't necessarily get easier. And he's like, how do you do it? How do you do this kind of work day in and day out Um, and, and not fall into despair. And I said, I don't know what it'll be for you, but for me, it's one word. He said, what's that? I said, it's hope. And then he leaned in and he said as a scientist, yeah, but which hope? And in that moment, all of a sudden, the doctor became the patient and the patient became the doctor even though I was wearing a very ridiculous outfit in the moment. And everything turned. Andy Crouch puts it this way, he says, human beings can live for 40 days without food, they can live four days without water, and they can live for four minutes without air, but we cannot live for four seconds without hope. That doctor was right. Which hope is it? And everybody's got hope because you can't live without some sort of faith in the future? but what is that hope that you believe in? This would be a natural point at the end of my introduction to read the Scripture for you, but I want to do things a little differently today. Instead of reading the Scripture and kind of giving you the answer, I actually want to share with you what your options are before we get to the Scriptures. I want to talk about the four modern types of hope today, and when we get towards the end, I'll share with you kind of Scripture's perspective on it. The first type of hope that you might choose to place your life in is technological hope. In its broadest sense, this is the hope that, uh, that everything will be a little bit better, um, that technology will make everybody's life a little better, but it also goes one step further. I don't know if you saw a couple of years ago, Time Magazine had this cover, Can Google Solve Death? And you might be thinking to yourself, wait, isn't Google an internet company? Aren't they an information company, a, a search engine company? yes but they believe that there are also so much more. And they believe that information is really the most essential thing about you. I want to introduce you to a new term today. It's the word transhumanist. Turn to the person next to you and say transhumanist. I want you to look really sophisticated the next time you go to a cocktail party that you're able to talk about transhumanism. Transhumanism is the belief that while we cannot solve the issue of aging, we can solve the issue of non-existence. In other words they believe that you and I are basically the sum total and accumulation of what goes on in our brains and that you are the kind of the thoughts and the emotions and the experiences and they believe that we're getting towards a point in the not too distant future where we are going to be able to take your brain and to download your brain into a computer, into an avatar that you might be able to exist, if you will, into the future um, in your thoughts and that your mind basically continues to live on. So let me give you some examples of this that they paint. So imagine it's the year 2070 and you're a high school student and you're doing research on a president from the mid-21st century who not only served our country but who has also died. But before that person died, we downloaded their brain. Instead of going to Wikipedia and reading an article about this dead president, you pull up the avatar and you engage in a real live conversation with the living essence of that person's mind. Or imagine you're a loved one in the year 2070, and your spouse is recently deceased, but before they died, you made sure that you did the download so that when you got home at the end of the day, you could actually pull up the avatar of that spouse, and you could carry on conversations with the living presence of that spouse in computerized form. Is it me or does this start to get a little creepy? And do you feel the same way? But this is what the transhumanists believe. And what's amazing is that scientists, even like Stephen Hawking said, this is the next step in the evolutionary cycle. And this is the only realistic form of life after death. And what's interesting to me is that the great C.S. Lewis actually predicted that this would happen all the way back in the first half of the 20th century, that in 1943, C.S. Lewis had written the third in what was a space trilogy of books. And in this book that's called That Hideous Strength, the head of the enemy headquarters, the, the great enemy of society, the Satan figure, is actually a mind that is kept artificially alive by a bunch of machines. And in 1943, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said... It means that if this technique is really successful, they have for all practical purposes discovered a way of making themselves immortal. It is the beginning of what really is a new species, the chosen heads who never die. They will call it the next step in evolution, and henceforward, all the creatures that you and I call human are mere candidates for admission to the new species or else it's slaves, perhaps It's food. This is the technological hope. But there are other types of hope that are out there too. Another one is the romantic hope. I'll never forget when uh, I serve on the board of a university, when another guy from the board came up to me at, uh, right before a dinner. Uh, he knows me to be a pastor because we've known each other for over a decade. I know him to be someone who doesn't believe. And he came running up to me and he says, I finally read something about the afterlife that actually clicks and makes sense for me. I'm so excited. I'd love to share it with you. And so he handed me an envelope and inside was a New York Times uh, article. And this is the article. It's by an NYU professor, Samuel Scheffler, who's a philosophy professor, who, um, who is famous for secularism and, and, and thought the importance of the afterlife seriously. And this is what this NYU professor says. I believe in life after death. No, I don't think that I will live on as a conscious being after my earthly demise. I'm firmly convinced that death marks the unqualified and irreversible end of our lives. My belief in life after death is more mundane. What I believe is that other people will continue to live after I myself have died." In other words, what this person believes is that when you've come into contact with someone, when you're in relationship with someone, that there's a little part of you that rubs off on them. And since there's this continuous cycle of us you know, having the next generation and moving forward, that there's a sense that we live on um, in an afterlife, that a little part of us lives on in the people that are around us. This is a, a romantic view Of life after death. It's what I call the Titanic theology. Do you remember this movie? Can you believe that this movie is 20 years old? I was shocked to discover that, that it's 20 years old now. Here's the deal. In the Titanic movie, it's this tragic, awful story, but in order to make the story palatable, in the midst of that tragic story is the heart of a romantic love story. And that while they're not both going to live, that only one of them is going to survive. It's okay because one of them will live on in the heart and the life of the other. That that's the hope of what this story entails. And Celine Dion, the singer, is the primary propagator of this kind of romantic, titanic theology. And so we're going to bring the orchestra back out and I'm going to sing for you a little bit here. Don't you want that? No, you don't want that, said Mary. I heard that, by the way. <laughs> Let's put that in her personnel review file. <laughs> but here's, here's what she says, sings in the song. Near, far, wherever you are, I believe that the heart does go on. Once more, you open the door, and you're here in my heart, and my heart will go on and on and you're here, and there's nothing I fear, and I know that my heart will go on. will stay forever this way, and you're safe in my heart, and well, my heart will go on and on. Make it stop. <laughs> but do you see the the hope that's behind this? Do you see the philosophy that's behind this, that there's a little part in me that lives, and a little part of you, and it will go on and on forever? Is that your hope? There's a technological hope today, there's romantic hope today, but there's also lots of religious hope today. There's all kinds of different religions. There's secular forms of religion, there are sacred, ancient forms of religion. What is religion? Religion is basically any kind of system of belief, practice, way of life that attempts to get you into contact with the spiritual, the divine, the ultimate To get you in touch with God. And not all religions are the same, but all religions often have a little kernel of that to it, that it's an attempt for your soul to connect with something bigger. Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous English preacher in the first part of the 19th century would often tell a story to illustrate the difference between Christianity and another religion. He would tell a parable about a king, and in that little kingdom there was a servant who was in charge of kind of gardening a certain portion of a land. And one day that servant, when he was looking over his crops, realized that he was having one of the best crops that he had ever had. And then he pulled out one of the carrots and said, this carrot is the finest carrot that I have ever grown or ever seen. And so instead of selling the carrot or eating the carrot, he took the carrot and he took the carrot to the king. And he said and gave it to the king as a token of my appreciation, my respect, my admiration of you. I wanted to present to you with the finest vegetable that I have ever grown. And the king thanked the servant for the gift. And then the king said, Because you have given this to me, I would like to give you the land that you're on and also some adjacent land so that you can continue to grow and expand your crops. Well, there was an earl who was watching this go on, and the earl in watching this thought, Gosh, if that's what can happen if you give a carrot, imagine if you gave something better. And so the very next day, walks into the presence of the king, and the earl declares majestically, My lord, this is the finest black stallion that I have ever raised, ever ridden, ever seen. And I would like to give this stallion to you as a token of my appreciation and admiration and respect for who you are. And the king received the gift but didn't do anything else. And the earl remained in his place, fixated, expecting the king to give him something else. But the king did not, and the king could tell the disappointment on the earl's face. And then he said this, The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Do you see the difference? One of them was giving a gift without expecting anything in return. And the other one was giving a gift in order to try to get something else, so they weren't really giving anything at all. In this way, the gospel is different from every other religion out there. In fact, um, the best way I can articulate it for you is that there's an author by the name of uh, Dane Ortland who puts it this way, who says that Christianity is the unreligion, but it is the one faith whose founder tells us not to bring our doing, but our need. It is out of our need, out of our brokenness, out of our emptiness that we come to God, and that is unlike any other religion that's out there. But there's all different kinds of hopes. There's religious hopes where you try to build your way to God, manipulate the powers or God to get what you want. There's technological hope, there's romantic hope, and then there's what the Bible would call resurrection hope. Here's how Tim Keller describes resurrection hope. He says, "This we not only get the bodies and the lives we had, but also the bodies and the lives we wished for, but had never had before received. It's all because the Christian hope is not just an ethereal, disembodied existence, but one in which the soul and the body and the mind are finally, perfectly integrated in one in which we dance, sing, hug, work, play. The Christian doctrine of the resurrection is then a reversal of death's seeming irreversibility. It is." is the end of nevermore. We get it all back, the love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. Here's what I don't want you to miss. In all the different versions of hope, there's an element of truth to them, but what they in essence do is that they isolate a part of your life and mind and they sacrifice the rest of your life just for that one part. So for the technological hope, uh, it it says that you're basically just a mind, you're not really a body, you're not a heart, you're not a soul. The romantic says that you're basically just emotions, that you're basically just a heart, but they ignore the rest of you. The religious hope reduces you and I to a spirit, but ignores things like the body and the heart. But resurrection hope is the only thing I'm aware of that takes heart and soul and mind and strength, and it redeems and rescues all of it. Do you see how different Jesus' hope is? My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them from me. My hand. Does that sound like a really different kind of hope than the other ones I've described? Several years ago, it was August 14th of 2009. I know exactly what day. I know exactly where I was. We were on an insane family vacation with other families. We got together with four other families All of our children rented one house. So there were five families in this house. There were 11 children under the age of 10. (laughs) Most of the children were under the age of five. I think in rugby terms, they refer to that as a scrum. We all converged in uh, the Great Smoky Mountains near Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and, uh, and we had a great time together. We had experiences like a little bear trying to climb into one of the strollers. Uh, we, we went hiking together and discovered that strollers like these were not equipped for going off-road, if you will. But the moment that I recall is that we had planned this short little hike that would go to a waterfall. It was a hike that was manageable for the kids to join us on. It was a pretty flat hike, wide trail, seemed very safe. And we got all the way to the waterfall and we're on our way back. And the, the kids, because now they're going back a way that they've already been, they, they started to feel a little more comfortable to kind of explore and run around. I was sitting there walking with Kelly and our oldest daughter and our youngest daughter Ashby was hanging out with a couple of other kids and they are playing and kind of, uh, you know, engaging in just kind of imagination talk and I noticed that we were getting to that one part of the trail where it narrows a little bit and it's the only part of the trail where there's one of those sheer cliffs or precipices off to the side. And I noticed that Ashby is walking right along the edge of that, totally oblivious to the danger that's there. And something in me just rises up to run ahead, even though I don't see that she's falling. And by the time I'm in mid stride, she immediately slips, starts to go over the edge, and I grab her. And I pulled her back, and she squeezed around my neck as I held her as tight as I could. And all she said over and over again was, Papa, you saved me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's the hope we have. That he has us. That he's got us in the grip of his grace. And that nothing, nothing can snatch us out of his hand. In this way, we don't just think about the future. We're willing to walk into the future without fear. And I'm here to declare that Harvard didn't discover it, that Google didn't invent it, that the New York Times didn't report it, that scientists can't disprove it and philosophers can't explain it. And it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the only hope, the only hope for not just part of you, but for all of you and for all of us. It's the only thing that gives me the confidence to walk into a hospital room it's the only hope I know that promises to rescue. And it's not about you climbing your way to God. It's about heaven reaching down to claim you and me. And in this hope, we can fill in the blank by saying that the human beings are the only ones that have this hope, but it was given as a gift. And all we can say in response is, thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you know this hope for yourself? Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, thank you for grabbing us with the grip of your grace, for rescuing us redeeming us, renewing us with your steadfast love. Lord, when we declare that this is what we believe, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that this is what you have in mind, that you've got us, that you're the good shepherd, that we don't walk alone, that we don't just know you, but more importantly, you know us. That you're the only one that has true, eternal life. Not just part of it, but all of it. With you, we shall never perish. With you, nothing is lost. Lord, I imagine and can confess of myself that we spend a lot of our time relying on different kinds of hopes when there's only one hope that saves. And so help us to say thank you and to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.